you have a Bible today, I would love for you to open up to Genesis chapter 3 with me this morning um, as we continue our time around the Advent wreath and as we continue to allow these lights to point us to uh, the light of heaven, the light of life, the Savior of the whole world. Uh, last week we began by uh, talking about the hope that we have uh, in God, whereas the world will let us down in every way. God, the everlasting, ever faithful God, gives us strength. He gives strength to the weary one. If our hearts are anchored in Him, if our eyes stay on the candle that He has lit for us, we will find contentment. We will always have hope, confidence in His promises, expectations that will never result in disappointment or dissatisfaction. Now we've lit another candle that burns to remind us of another great Christmas promise, and that is the promise of peace. As Isaiah said, that born to us this time of year, born to us at Christmas, is the prince of peace. You know, I think it's hard it's hard to explain what peace is or explain how important peace is uh, on any different level. But whereas it's hard to express what peace is, I, I, I found in preparation for this, and, and I found that throughout life, whereas I might not be able to explain what peace is or articulate um, what peace means, um, I think you'll agree that I'm very aware of what peace isn't. And I'm very aware of when there isn't peace, right? I might not be able to explain what peace is or where peace is or how peace is accomplished, but I'm very well versed in what isn't peaceful or where peace isn't. And, and, And what I mean by that is we all know, I think, we all know about and we've all felt the absence of peace, And maybe you can agree with me this morning, and and maybe this gets into some of our personal lives, and and I think this is appropriate, but I think we also see this on a global scale, that we all are aware of what the absence of peace feels like. And I think all of us can define um, that absence of peace. There's tension, right? There's animosity. uh, There's conflict in in, in our world, our relationships, in in our our, our, families, in, in our individual lives, even internally, right? We all deal with this tension, this conflict, this animosity, which is the absence of peace. Now, maybe the greatest effect of no peace, the greatest impact that tension and conflict has on us is that it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us feel unwelcome, that there are places that you don't want to go because you understand that you'll feel unwelcome there. There are people that you don't want to be around because you feel uncomfortable there, right? And it's not that you don't like them or you have anything against them. It's just that something happened at some point in your life where the peace that was there or could have been there was let to burn out. And now you feel that absence of peace. And here's what really stands out to me. Um, and, and I think that we should talk about for a little bit today. And this might get a little bit too close to home for some of us, but I think it's, again, I think it's appropriate. Um, we are really good, maybe we're too good, at explaining away the absence of peace. And what I mean by that is we are really good at explaining 
why there isn't peace between us and any given group of people or any given person, right? That we are really good at saying, well, the reason why we don't get along is this. Or the reason why my family and their family doesn't get along is this. The reason why we as a people and they as a people, we as a social group and they as a social group, we as a political group and they as a political group, we as a nation and they as a nation. Come on, we can go on and on. The reason why we are very good and maybe we're too good at explaining away why there isn't peace between us in any group of people or any individual person. We as a society, I think, and again, it's just kind of, a, it kind of explains something about us that maybe we're not proud of, we shouldn't be proud of. We as a society love to explain and even justify the lines that divide us. We are really prepared to do this, aren't we? Almost like, and I don't think we realize it, almost like we're so prepared to defend it and we're so prepared to explain it, it's almost like we're afraid that something might challenge it. But we have been conditioned for this, I think, because our world loves to tell these stories. Our world loves to explain why there isn't peace, where maybe there could be, but there just isn't. If you've studied world history, you know that there's just some nations that historically have never gotten along. Um, in uh, world history, uh, if you study the Middle Ages and, and, and throughout uh, the last couple, uh, the last thousand years or so, you'll know that there are nations that just have never gotten along and historically have always been in conflict, whether it's England and France or any number of nations. And obviously more relevant to us, um, uh, over the last hundred years, America has had some pretty perennial enemies, right? It, it seems like um, for the last... 60, 70, 80 years, America has been in conflict with the likes of Russia, uh, North Korea, Iran, and some of the Middle Eastern nations, right? And, and, and every so many years, a new conflict arises to remind us we just don't get along with them, do we? And you'll hear people say things like, well, they'll never get along. That group of people and our group of people, this nation and that nation, it's just not in their DNA to be at peace. And, and maybe you you understand that. Maybe you defend that. Maybe you're, you're glad that there's those dividing lines. Now, uh, politicians and pundits are quick to explain why those de conflicts that started decades ago just are still around. And I guess my point is, we are really good at remembering, explaining, defending, and upholding the things that divide us. Well, of course, Republicans and Democrats don't get along. Of course. Are you crazy? And depending on which side you're on, you're quick to say, it's their fault. I mean, if they were like me, I'd get along with them. But they're not like me, and they're so wrong, and I'm right. Of course I don't get along with them, and I'll never get along with them because they're just wrong. We're very well, well aware and informed about dividing lines ethnically, socially, professionally. And again, we go through this song and dance <coughs> every Christmas, don't we? That there are those people that used to come to our Christmas parties, but they don't anymore. There are those people that we used to get together with, but maybe for whatever reason, we can't anymore. There are people that for generations, our group has just never gotten along with. Now, I'm not trying to point any blame. I'm just saying that we're all familiar with the absence of peace and we explain it away all of the time. And, and I guess it's just kind of expected at this point, right? We kind of expect there to always be people that we're going to have animosity with. And we expect when we meet new people that they're going to have people that they don't get along with. And it's a good reason why they don't get along. The Bible 
also joins us in explaining, defending animosity and tension, giving us origin stories for why things don't always fit together in harmony at home, in nature, across the world, and across the kingdoms. Uh, right off the bat, the Bible starts to offer all kinds of explanations for why things just seem so tense in the world, why there's so much animosity, why there's so much conflict. If you found your place in Genesis 3, you're going to find as we read through this chapter that this chapter explains a lot about the tension and conflict in the world, that it explains the spiritual warfare that we face. It explains the conflict in our homes. It explains the weariness of life itself. As we read this chapter together, we'll see why the conflict came about to begin with, where it stems from, and we'll see the fallout that it left in its wake. So if you have your Bibles found in, uh, in Genesis 3, I want you to listen to these first 19 verses. We'll hear the familiar story of when things were uh, as they should have been and then fell away from that. And we'll also hear, again, the fallout of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat, it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it and also gave to her husband with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the Lord, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said to him, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of the, which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then Adam said, or then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are more cursed than the, all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise your, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your, of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you are taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. So I want you to notice a few things here in Genesis 3. Back in verse number 
12 through 13, we see that when God approaches Adam for the sin that he committed, Adam's response is to blame someone else. That we automatically notice something isn't right. Something isn't right in this situation. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And then, of course, God responds by announcing the curse or the fallout of the things that uh, they just did. And we have an explanation. We have an explanation for the spiritual warfare that we face because the seed of the enemy and the seed of Adam would always be in conflict with each other. There'd be tension between. The enemy would always try to upend and discourage and disrupt our walk with God. We see that the explanation for the conflict at home, that the husband and wife would have this animosity, this tension, this conflict, and it would always cause troubles between them. We also see that Adam was told that his work, his labor, would be frustrated by the natural degradation and weariness of this broken world. Now, all of these are legitimate explanations. I'm not trying to say otherwise, but my point is the Bible is a record of how thorough we are at understanding and reasoning the tension and animosity in our world. Well, the reason why uh, I always have this spiritual struggle is because God said it was going to be that way. The reason why my home is just not the way it should be is because it's always been that way. The reason why I am frustrated by this world and I always seem like I'm walking up a hill with forces working against me is because it's always been that way. There's a good reason for it, right? Overall, over in Genesis 9, there's even an explanation for why there's conflict between animals and people. The tension that we face between, uh, with wild animals. There's no shortage of tension, and there's no shortage of conflict in our world, and there's no shortage of explanations for it all. And if you read throughout the Old Testament, you'll find origins and stories for so many social and ethnic conflicts. You'll find uh, reasons why the descendants of Isaac were always at conflict with the descendants of Ishmael. You'll find why Jacob's family never got along with Esau's family. And there are so many stories about why Israel didn't get along with the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Amorites or the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Moabites, uh, broke the tradition, the Philistines. Right? There's all these good reasons. Well, the reason why the Israelites and the Canaanites didn't get along, you can go read this chapter. The reason why the Amorites and the Israelites didn't get along, go read that chapter. So there are good reasons for why Esau and Jacob didn't get along. Did you read the story about how Jacob stole his birthright? Did you read the story about how, about how Sarah made Hagar leave and, and Ishmael had to grow up in the wilderness? I mean, there's good reason why these families didn't get along. But here's the thing that I think is relatable to us. We have our own list, don't we? Don't you? Of individuals and families and political groups and social groups. You've got your own list of people that you don't get along with, don't you? You've got your own list of families and social groups and political groups. And we can't even imagine ever having peace with them, can we? The animosity is too deep. The tension is too rooted. It's just always going to be that way. There's never going to be any peace. There's just too much conflict. We've got good reasons. If we're good at anything, it's standing firm in our pride and drawing a line in the sand with regards to where we will go and where we won't go, who we will be around and who we won't be around. But, 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 uh, but I know, I know, and, and again, I, I know, you've got good reasons for the absence of peace. You didn't just decide to be mad at them. You didn't just decide to not ever speak to that group of people. You didn't just decide to decide that you couldn't associate with those people. You've got a good reason, don't you? 
We've all got good reasons for the absence of peace. But if we've learned anything, it's that humans have been having good reasons for having grudges and upholding grudges for a long time, haven't we? And behind all the good reasons for why, why us and them don't get along, for why our people and those people don't associate, for why our flags will never fly with their flags, behind all that is a giant reason that explains all of these other reasons. And this is why I bring all this up today. Do you know that the fallout between us and everyone is a direct result of our fallout with God? Why did Adam and Eve face spiritual persecution? Why did Adam and Eve face conflict between each other? Why did Adam and Eve face frustration in this world? Because they first fell away. They first rebelled against God. Would it have ever been that broken had they not disobeyed God? No. If you go back and read Genesis 2, when God makes it all perfect, he says to them back in Genesis 2 verse 16 that I've given you every tree of the garden to eat freely. But look over at chapter 2 verse 17, and we heard this repeated from Eve. But God says specifically, I've given you all these trees to eat. I've given you all this paradise to enjoy. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now, let me explain that. Because they didn't die when they ate it, did they? Physically, they were still alive. They were, they were, they were, they were, but they were aware of something that they weren't aware of before. They felt shame. They were naked, right? And they covered themselves up. But they could not cover up their heart that was exposed they could not cover up that sin that was exposed you see when they died it wasn't a physical death it was a spiritual death but isn't it interesting that all these other conflicts are a direct result of that conflict with God that when they had peace with God everything else was in harmony but when they broke peace with God everything else fell apart now, you know the story that happens in Genesis 4. As soon as they get out of the garden, God banished them because if they would eat of the tree of, uh, tree of life in this condition, they would be that way forever. So God banished them, but as soon as they get out, what is the next story? What is chapter 4 about? It's about Adam and Eve's children fighting and one of them killing the other. And how bad does it get? Look over at chapter 4 at the end of that chapter. And we have, a, we have a, a song written by Lamech, a descendant of Cain. Lamech sings a song about his vengeance toward others. He sings a song and he patronizes the fact that he has no peace. And he is willing to kill whoever he want, that crosses his line. Look what he says. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Lamech says, if you cross my line, I have no problem making a list, and I have no problem checking it twice, and I'll have no problem taking you out. So you see how quickly it all unraveled? How quickly it went from peace to nothing but war? See, our propensity and our likelihood to fall out with each other is an overflow of our pre-existing separation from God. Now, there are no good reasons for why we fell out with God. Of course, it comes from the result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and falling away from his presence of Eden. God took them out of that spiritual haven, 
so they wouldn't be stuck in that lost condition forever, but it would take a long, long time for things to get remedied. Yet here's what I want us to focus on. Whereas we in humanity was quick to learn to live with the necessary boundaries in place, we are really good at separating from each other and not building those bridges back. God took an entirely different, totally opposite approach after the fall. The story of scriptures is that, uh, that we highlight, uh, it highlights the side effects of the fall of humanity uh, as humanity splintered away. But, but the main takeaway is that while we kept getting farther away, God began working on bringing us back. Listen, if any two parties had irreconcilable differences, it was God and us. God was holy, we were unholy. God was light, we were darkness. God was love, we were full of hate. The differences could not be more stark or could not be more clear. Yet God's intent in the Old Testament is crystal clear. God desired to bring us back. He longed to make peace with us. The only problem was we were totally infected by sin, an anti-spiritual toxin that had become a cancer inside every human's soul, severing every connective tissue we have with God, erasing every inclination toward what is right and what is holy, replacing it with selfishness and destructive character traits. And as humanity populated, the problem spread and was amplified. But that did not stop God from working on a plan, which required him being patient with us, having mercy with all of us as we disgraced his image, defied his name, and destroyed each other. So everything you read from Genesis 4 all the way to the end of the Old Old Testament is a picture of God's grace. Humanity on a crash course, burning everything in its path. God in the middle of it all, setting a stage for redemption. Leveraging people that didn't even want to work with him, yet he used them anyway. And I don't think it's too general to say that everything from Adam to Malachi, from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, is preparation for reconciliation. You may wonder, why did it take so long? Why did God wait so long? Now, we don't know. We don't know, but we can make educated guesses. I think the best guess is that God wanted there to be irrefutable evidence of his patience towards sinners. He waited a long time and was patient for a long time. And also, he wanted us to see just how much damage sin will cause left untouched and left uncured. So when a solution is provided, nobody could argue that it was needed. So that if any number of people refuse to embrace it, whatever judgment they receive will be justified. Now also, I think, because the problem was universal, God wanted the most global stage possible to platform his provision for redemption. If you would, turn over to Galatians chapter 4. That's all the way into the New Testament. Through past the Gospels, past Acts and Romans. I want you to read about what Paul says about this provision for redemption that God was working, through, working up through all the ages. Galatians 4, verse 3 through 7. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And, and I don't think there's no greater element of the world than chaos and conflict tension and animosity but when the fullness of time had come 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons or as children. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, whereas you will cry in your hearts, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a child of God, an heir of God through Christ. So how did God redeem us? By becoming one of us and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now listen, don't miss this. Humanity had separated itself from God, falling short in every way, so God joined the human race to be perfect for us and to make peace with us. And we were totally uncooperative. I'd wager the only people you would ever slack for, you would ever uh, cover for, uh, maybe would be your family members, but even so many times that you do that, it, it gets a little bit wearied, wearisome that you cover for your loved ones, that you, uh, you, you make peace with them when they don't want to make peace with you. After a while, you get a little tired. Uh, we just don't have a selfless heart by nature that's required to always persist sometimes. But God's response toward us who had drawn away and had drifted away and fallen away was to move into our midst and carry us back home. And this is very important context when you read the Christmas story. Because everything proclaimed and communicated by the angels that night that Jesus was born is speaking to this very reality. God was entering the human race to erase the separation between us and forever save us and keep us by his grace. There's no greater sign that God came to make peace and that he became one of the very creatures that wrecked everything. taking you through a little bit of a tour through the New Testament this morning, but I think this is important. Flip over just another book to, to Ephesians chapter two and listen to how Paul writes it in that book. Ephesians two, verse 13 and 14. These are two important memory verses I want you to see and highlight, underline, and, and, and think about over the next couple of weeks. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. The wall that divides us, he has broken down, he has kicked down. How do you do this? He became one of us. Flip over again to Colossians. There's two more books over. Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20. Look at these verses. This is Paul writing about the incarnation of Jesus. He says, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all of his fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile, there's our word, all things to himself, by him, things on earth, in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, now he has reconciled. Now, we read a lot about Jesus' blood in the New Testament. 
And that is the basis for our reconciliation. Now, our minds instantly and naturally go to the cross. Obviously, that's part of it. But I want to talk about how the incarnation is as important. When Jesus was born into the world, he was born as a genuine human being. Blood pumping through his heart, from his heart, through his veins, that bore the same basic DNA that every person had possessed all the way back to Adam. Yet he was, he was not conceived naturally. It was the Spirit of God that performed a miracle in Mary's womb. He was equal part God, equal parts man. One writer says, in the incarnation, the preexistent one added humanity to his deity. But the fact that God, purely spirit, became a fleshly creature, relying on the circulation of blood, speaks to God's commitment to save us. You ever thought about that? God, who doesn't need anything to live, made himself at the mercy of the human body. You think about that? That God, who is limitless, limited himself to our finite body. We had unraveled from the very seams, yet God became one of us to hold us together. In that, he would submit himself and put himself in the box that we are still in. He would lower himself from heaven to earth, from spirit to flesh and blood. And that in and of itself declares the goodness of God. God made himself to live by Adam's blood so that we might come to live by his spirit. You don't ever think about that, do you? God made himself to live by the very blood that had destroyed his world. He would pour out that blood on the cross. But the fact that God would limit his divinity to a beating heart is remarkable. I mean, maybe God appearing to be human, maybe that makes sense. Maybe God pretending to be human, that kind of makes sense. But God himself leaving glory and dwelling in the womb of, of a woman for nine months? Can you even imagine can you imagine God, the zygote, right? Can you imagine God, the several days old, you know, joining of cells in a, in a woman's womb? Can you imagine that God in full was like that? That God was an embryo. That God would be a fetus and he would not, you know, it wasn't like watching Survivor or wherever they say they go, up, they go to some, they go to some, you know, hotel on the weekends, Right? It wasn't like walking, watching a reality TV show where they only show up when the camera's filming, right? God lived in this condition, right, for nine months. Come on, have you ever had moments where you thought to yourself, why am I doing this? Have you ever been doing something that you thought, maybe I'm a little, this is a little bit below my pay grade. Maybe I should hire someone to do this. Maybe someone else should be doing this. Consider, God limited himself to the process of the incarnation from gestation forward. And why did he do this? To reconcile us who weren't even cooperating, to reconcile us who weren't even going to contribute, to reconcile us to himself. He was doing this for us, and we were totally helpless, and honestly, we were totally ungrateful for it I mean don't you think at some point he thought what am I doing why am I doing this but no 
He was driven by compassion for us that we'll never understand. He lowered himself, born as the song was sang and the news was proclaimed. He did all this to make peace with us. Why did he do this? Because there was conflict between you and him, me and him, us and him. There was a wall between us. There was a gap between us and we were never going to get across it. So he crossed it for us. Do you, you get that? That we were never going to be at peace with God. There was always going to be conflict. There was always going to be condemnation. There was always going to be self-doubt and self-destruction. Yet God did this to make peace with us. The very people that would shake their fist at him and nail him on a cross, he did this for us. Now, in the ancient days, when news was spread, there wasn't instantaneous avenues like there are today. There weren't even newspapers. In the ancient days, the only news that really spread was from very important people, kings or dignitaries. And when a nation was in the middle of war or coming out of a war or some great threat was looming, emperors or kings or tribal leaders would send news through means of heralds or messengers. Back in those days, because of how much effort had to go into spreading the news, the news only would be spread by the heralds if it was very bad or if it was very good. They didn't come and give you an update on the stock market or an update on how the harvest was going. I mean, they, they gave you an update about war and about great you know, famines or, or great threats or great miracles. Heralds showed up for important matters. To announce that the war was beginning or the war was over. Remember our little prophecy from last week. Isaiah said, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended. On the night that Jesus was born, like we sang a little bit ago, God sent his angels to herald the good news, the all-time good news of his arrival. If you will, flip over to Luke 2. And I want you to see, in light of all that we've talked about today, I want you to see what that message was. Also remember, the angels didn't appear to everyone. The heralds did not appear in the town gates or the city squares. They came to a group of shepherds who were watching their flock by night. Luke 2 verse number 8 says, In the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth. What's the word? Peace, goodwill, favor towards men. Let me explain something real quick. The shepherds were the lowest people on the totem pole in society at this time. 
which is ironic because they were the most important people in society at this time at the same time. They were the ones who provided the flocks for Israel to sacrifice to God. As they tried to make peace with God in the temple, it was the shepherds who raised the flocks. But the shepherds were also very unclean. So people looked down on them and they stayed away from them. But all they needed their sheep. The shepherds lived to provide a nation, the nations a means of making peace, but they themselves had no peace. There was no place for them in town or in society. On that same night, we learned that a baby had been born who also was not given a place in the city because he too was considered unclean. Newborn babies and their mothers were considered unclean and because of the convoluted process of sanitation, the innkeeper had to say to Mary and Joseph, uh, y'all are fine to stay here, but not him. But there's a barn outside of town. The shepherds hang out there, but y'all will fit right in with them. Go seek refuge there. You see, the whole nation of Israel was well aware that nobody had peace with God, yet they collectively decided to openly shame a small portion of the population because it made them feel better about their own shame and their own sin. That's how it works, isn't it? We know how the story goes. The baby's parents found refuge in one of the stables. The shepherds themselves brought sheep to that stable from time to time. So it makes sense why the heralds came to the shepherds and the sheep, uh, the shepherds and the shepherds only. Because while the message was for everyone, it was especially, especially for those that did not have peace. Those that knew well the absence of peace. But they were told that night that they could now have peace with God. They were told that night that they could have peace with God because they now had favor from God because God on high, God on high had taken on the lowest estate to elevate us all. Do you see how this is working? Look, there's no way to study the whole Bible and claim that God hasn't always favored us. He went to so many extremes to save us. Whereas it's easy to get lost in the weeds of the Old Testament, there's no denying that Jesus' birth promises to us that we are favored by God. God came to earth as a baby to eventually go to the cross for us all. He took on our blood to live a life that we couldn't, and he poured out his blood to pay a price that we couldn't. To tear down the wall that stood between us because we were imperfect from conception. Our DNA is tainted by sin so that our minds and inclination are warped by God in disobedience and imperfection. God decided that he would become a perfect human for us and do what we could not do for our sakes. Pay a life debt for all the sins we've committed that nothing might stand in the way of us and him anymore. For the entire race, he did this to bring us in good standing with him. And listen, this is way, way, way too big and way too deep of a concept to even scratch the surface of and comprehend. But I think it's important that we just get a glimpse of just what it meant for God to bring peace to us 2,000 years ago. We as a species were so far away from ever having peace with God, yet Christmas is a reminder to us that Jesus has brought us this most amazing gift. A few things I want to leave you with today that I want you to consider over the next couple of weeks as Christmas gets near. We've been given peace with God. How should that change our lives? Because it should change our lives, shouldn't it? God has said to you and said to me, 
Where there once was conflict, animosity, and separation, there is now peace, there is now inclusion, there is now welcome. You are now welcome. Like we mentioned, peace means the tension is over, the animosity is over. It also means that places that were off limits to us or dangerous for us are now accessible and welcoming. Three things I want you to write down and study in light of all this over the next couple of weeks. You have peace before God, you have peace before the enemy, and you have peace before your enemies. There's a difference. First, we have peace with God. That means we have access to God, access to his grace, because Jesus poured his blood out for us. He became one of us. He died for us. He took away our sin. He reconciled us to God. We were once enemies. Now we're friends. We were once slaves to sin. Now we're children of the Most High God. There's no questioning that. There is no condemnation. We are now family of God, heirs of God, right? You didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it. It, you didn't work for it. You were given this, this gift. You inherited sin from Adam. You have inherited a gift from Jesus. Adam made you in conflict with God. Jesus gives you peace with God. Adam built a wall. Jesus knocked it down. Right? You were infected by Adam's blood. You were washed by Jesus' blood. You were once far away. Now you are near. There is no conflict. There is no tension. You have peace with God. You know what that means? That means you can come boldly with confidence before the throne of grace that you might have mercy and grace to help you in the time of need. That means any time of need. So if you are taking advantage of this peace with God, I mean, I, I, I could go on all day about this, but come on, you have access to God himself. Not a saint somewhere up in heaven praying for you, not some intermediary person. You have access to God Almighty, the one who made you, the one that we rebelled against, who became one of us, that very God. You have access to God. Take advantage of it. Right? I mean, he's not a stranger unless you make him one. But Jesus became a child of Adam so that you might become a child of God, that you might walk in the full benefits of knowing God. All those excuses of, well, that's just how I've always been, or that's how we always have been. Listen, you don't have to live that way anymore. Somebody else can, and that's fine. You don't have to be that way anymore because you're no longer just a son or daughter of Adam and his descendants. You are a child of God. Right? I mean, so if this is true about you, and Adam, listen, we're all messed up. We're all broken. We all have a lot of things. We have good reasons for why we're all messes inside, but you've got a better reason. For why things can change. Listen, those problems, they're legitimate. But the salvation is just as even greater. You can reign in life all because you have peace with the one who gives you and replenishes your life. Now, that also, the other side of that coin is you have peace before the enemy. As in the devil, the one who condemns you, the one who accuses you. That you are no longer under his slavery, whether you're tempted by him or intimidated by him. You can have boldness before the enemy. When he says you can't, you can say, by the power of God, I can. When he says you've always been broken, you can say to him, no, I am now made new. When he says you're just like your mom or your dad or your grandmother or your ancestors, you can say, yeah, I know what Adam was, but I also know who Jesus is. 
right? When, when the enemy looks at you and says, hey, you'll never be anything, and your mind tempted and intimidating you, you do not have to listen to him. Listen, when the, when the shepherds left the, the manger, what did they go and do? They went into the town. Oh, y'all can say we're unclean all you want to. We've met the Savior. And they went and spread the good news. They were different. They were changed. They were now the herald, and you should be too. All right. One last thing. You can now have peace before your enemies. Remember how I started that we started this conversation talking about all the good reasons why the good reasons we have for being at odds with people? The reasons why we're different than them and divided from them, the reasons why we'll never get along with them. How that's all an overflow of being at odds with God. But now you're no longer at odds with God, right? Now you have peace with God, right? So that peace with God. That peace should overflow with more force and more power than the animosity did before it. And listen, this is the follow-up that Christians never take. This is the step that we fail to take so often as Christians. And I want you to examine the gift of peace so that you might take full advantage of it this Christmas season. Because if we haven't made this connection, it's because we fully haven't appreciated and embraced the peace we now have with God. If we understand what he did to give us peace, we begin to understand what he wants to what he wants to do with us now that we have peace. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if there, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He goes on, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. So here's, here's kind of where we end with this, and this might not make us feel as good as the last two points, but it's just as important. If God and sinner can be reconciled, why can't sinner and sinner be reconciled? That's a good question, isn't it? If God did not let any of the good excuses keep us from being reconciled to him, why are we so content with being so divided and so tense and so in conflict with everyone else? If you haven't, if you've received reconciliation, there's something in us that should always be looking to extend that and share with as many. Romans says that according to what lies in us, we should live peaceably with all. Now, I know you've got a good reason for why there's no peace between you and them. I believe, they, believe that they're, they believe wrong. They behave wrong. They're just wrong. They don't want to be right. But come on, what made you right? What made you right? Not what you did, but because of what God did, right? We have peace with God because God gave it to us. So what could happen if we shared that peace with others? What could happen? You can't change them, but you can make peace with them. And the greatest testimony that a Christian should have in this world is we are peacemaking people. Because blessed are the peacemakers because they look just like their father in heaven. Right? Listen, what was God's first move towards saving us? He came beside us and lived peaceably with us. If he had never taken that first step, we'd never be saved. So church, church. 
This Christmas, what gift should we all give away? The gift of peace. From those that are next to us, those that live, that are different than us, those that think and live and act differently, because we have a better reason. We have a better reason to give peace than we do to withhold it. God had a good reason to withhold it from us, yet Jesus was a better reason. So that's the story of how we were at odds with God, and as a result, we were at odds with everyone else, even ourselves. But God so loved us that we were his favorites. He became one of us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He took on our blood. He perfected this life. He poured out our, his blood who, for all those that have broken the law. So now we have peace. Peace with God, peace before the enemy, and even peace with our enemies. Because Christmas has provided us the amazing gift of reconciliation. The wonderful gift of peace. With that peace comes faith and boldness and kindness and peace has come to us all that it might go through us to remind the world once more that God has done something for us all. None of us would be saved if not for peace. God had a good reason to withhold peace, but he had a better reason to make peace. Christmas is that reason. Jesus is that reason. And, and let me take it a step further. You're part of that reason. Because he loved you. He loved you. And even though you were opposed to him, he favored you. So let me ask you, this gift of peace, it's yours. If you've never unwrapped it for yourself, all that condemnation, all that shame, all that sin, all that slavery to sin that you're living by, you can be free. Because the wall is broken down the separation is over. The blood of Jesus has been poured over you. You can be washed and clean and saved. But if you're a Christian and you've got that peace and you're still in fear of the enemy, you're still living uh, uh, the ways of Adam, you're still using excuses from people generations ago, you're still living in animosity. You're still defending why there's division. You're still upholding those grudges. If you're a Christian and this peace is in you, this peace should be changing you. This peace should make you different. This peace should make you free. I, I know you've got good reasons as to why that there isn't peace. But today we have a better reason for why we can have peace. With God. Before, in, before the enemy. And even before our enemies. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the peace that you give the peace that we couldn't deserve, the peace that we could never earn, the peace that you give freely, the peace that you have made with us, even though we worked hard against you. Lord, I pray you might would make your peace felt in the house today. If there's somebody here today that doesn't feel that peace, they don't feel that, that, that acceptance before you. It's not because you haven't made a way. You have made a way. Lord, would you show them that you, they, that you love them, you favor them, and that Jesus came for them? Would you show them that you have made peace with them, and by the blood of Jesus, they can be saved? Lord, for every Christian here today, if they are still living in fear of the enemy, if they're still living by the excuses of old, if they're still living divided and, and separated and, and always in conflict with other people and they haven't made that first move to try to make peace Lord would you make us aware that that can't be the case for Christians 
We've been given peace. We have, we are ambassadors for peace. We've been given a ministry of peace. We can't keep it to ourselves. And some may never receive it. But just like Jesus, we can die trying to give it to them. Because we have been given the greatest gift. May we share it with the whole world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.